Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. On September 23rd, the Crisis in Prison Senate hearing discussed the deplorable and dangerous conditions in Georgia's state prison system. Several mothers testified regarding their son's murders. Joshua Lester was stabbed by another inmate last July after trying to break up a fight. His mother, Nancy Masters, stated that his killer was just walking around. He wasn't in a separate section. It seems they put inmates wherever they have a bed. Jennifer Bradley testified about her son Carrington's death, who was stabbed last July just before his release date and bled to death out waiting nearly 30 minutes for a critically limited crew. Bradley stated there were some things he couldn't help but to speak about, like once hearing screams and later finding out someone was raped, ignored and extremely delayed medical calls, having to take showers with a man guarding the door with a knife, being served food that wasn't even fit enough to be tossed in a pigsty. Stephanie Lee stated her son Justin attempted suicide several times and endured several violent incidents before being killed by his cellmate last January. In other states, there are laws to protect first offenders from being placed in closed cells with lifers. The Georgia Department of Corrections failed to protect Justin and placed him directly in harm's way, Lee said. Her son's autopsy showed no traces of his prescribed antipsychotic medication. Further testimony described neglect and lack of care for inmates. One witness who revealed a female inmate was so desperate for medical attention post-pregnancy that she cut out her own stitches with fingernail clippers. Witnesses attributed much of the neglect to a lack of adequate staffing. A 2020 GDC report noted the challenge of retaining correctional officers. An anonymous correctional officer at Arendelle Street Prison testified that when it comes to medical care, we lack the ability to get them to our medical facility and we don't have enough medical staff to be able to treat all of them, the officer said. Recently, I was assigned to look after 400 inmates myself. Practically speaking, you can't. Bureau of Justice statistics show that 75 inmate deaths were attributed to homicide between 2001 and 2028. But since 2020, more than 40 inmate deaths have been attributed to murder or suspected murder. The Southern Center for Human Rights is pushing the DOJ to investigate the prison's deplorable conditions. The increasing murder and suicide rates and neglect of persons with psychiatric disabilities. SCHR attorneys have filed a lawsuit on behalf of men held in solitary confinement in Georgia prisons. During the hearing, she referenced a man with mental health issues who was confined to a cell every day for two years at Georgia State Prison, who was relocated to a cell with a metal bed frame covered in blood and feces. More than 300 men are held in solitary confinement in Georgia State Prison. 70% of them have psychotic disabilities. At least 12 have committed suicide in the last two years. Most of them in solitary confinement and most go unreported. An SCHR attorney stated that the only way to learn about deaths in the Georgia Department of Corrections is to send endless open records requests and those documents are often not free and not informative. We shouldn't have to search Facebook to learn about deaths in the state institutions. October 14th marks 42 years since anarchist political prisoner Bill Dunn was arrested in Seattle, Washington, and sentenced to 90 years for his role in a jailbreak from the downtown King County Correctional Facility. 
During the escape, a shootout occurred, and eventually Bill and two others were arrested. In 1983, Bill tried to escape from USP Lewisburg, for which he was given an additional 15 years, seven and a half years, to be spent in the control units at USP Marion. Bill was denied parole at his first parole hearing in 2014. The parole board's reasoning was due to the fact that Bill still maintains communication with anarchist groups and individuals. Bill has been in solidarity with the anarchist movement and the individuals and groups that take part in it, as well as black liberation movements and indigenous resistant movements. Through the years, Bill has also taught GED classes at almost every prison he has found himself at, helping many prisoners get their GED. Bill is known as generous, principled, and full of integrity, never wavering from his politics or convictions. Five officers with the Savannah, Georgia Police Department have been fired and another placed on probation after William Zachary Harvey was found hanging by his shoelaces while held in police custody. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation claims his cause of death was suicide, but Harvey's family is still seeking answers. Harvey was held for questioning by Savannah officers in an aggravated assault investigation. The officers stepped out of the interview room, but returned to find him unconscious with neck injuries caused by his shoelaces. Savannah Police Department officials stated that implemented life-saving measures were engaged, but failed, and all officers involved were placed on administrative leave. The Savannah Morning News, conducting its own investigation, found that two officers were terminated and another officer was suspended. Three others were fired after sharing a meme of the hanging death in a group chat. All but one of the fired officers fired an appeal, but all terminations were upheld. Harvey's relatives and their family's attorneys met with Savannah Police Chief Roy Minter and Mayor Van Johnson after the firing announcement. Mayor Johnson stated that this is a tough day. It's a tough day for the city of Savannah for those who look to the Savannah Police Department to serve and protect, and it's a tough day for the Harvey family. So far, a civil prosecution case has not been brought to the county district attorney's office. The family, however, does not believe that their loved one would have hanged himself. It's just been hard finding out what happened and how it happened, Harvey's son Michael told the Morning News. We're not going to stop until we get all our questions answered. We just want to know the truth. Prisoners at Monterey County Jail in California have gone on hunger strike after the death of Sergio Guzman Gonzalez on September 24, 2021. In addition to Gonzalez's unlawful death, prisoners are protesting cruel and unusual punishment violation of due process, and negligent health and safety violations. On September 14th, officials at Monterey County Jail publicly acknowledged a COVID-19 outbreak, with cases among prisoners increasing from 30 to 130 in over a few days. Attorneys successfully petitioned the court to allow Mike Brady of Sabat Consulting to inspect the jail on September 24th. In a report to U.S. District Court Judge Nathaniel Cousins, Brady praised Sheriff Steve Burnell for temporarily using his authority in the summer of 2020 to release some prisoners and recommended that Bernal use that authority again by releasing 100 to 200 prisoners. He said, quote, The elephant in the room is the population of 874 prisoners still living there. It only takes one spark to erupt. The jail's official capacity is 825. The sheriff's office is amenable to other recommendations in Brady's report, 
but it will not release more incarcerated people, according to the chief deputy, Jim Bass. Prisoners dispute that sheriff's duties have been doing enough to stop the spread of COVID-19, with one prisoner reporting, quote, They had the deputies come in, do counts numerous times without gloves, without the decontamination of their boots. They've rifled through our stuff. They've searched our stuff without gloves, not wearing their masks properly. The other day, they came in and did a raid in here. They put us all on the ground at 7.45 in the morning with no shirts, no socks. They put us all in an 11 foot and a half by 24 and a half foot room, 40 people. They weren't promoting social distancing. They weren't giving us masks until I started requesting the masks because I'm diabetic. I'm a high risk. Gonzalez's family was told by officials that he died by suicide, but this is also disputed by the incarcerated. Chief Deputy Bass will only say that they are waiting on a pathology report. Prisoners that have known Gonzalez for 20 or more years report him to be motivated, physically fit, and in great health. He contracted COVID-19 and was placed in quarantine for only six days with seven other members. When brought back before the end of the CDC-recommended quarantine period, a deputy reportedly stated, quote, they're all contaminated anyway. Deal with it. Attorneys have been keeping tabs on the jail since 2016, when Monterey County, the sheriff's office, and the jail's medical contractor, Wellpath, entered into a court-approved settlement agreement to improve access to medical and mental health care. Decreasing suicides in the jail is mandatory under the 2016 court order, and while some progress has been made, Attorneys believe mental health care needs to be improved. This isn't the first COVID-19 related protest at Monterey County. In March 2020, 63 prisoners of F-Wing went on hunger strike over insufficient cleaning supplies. In response to the strike, correctional deputies released 17 prisoners meeting the criteria of an order issued by the Monterey County Superior Court to release prisoners accused of drug possession and non-domestic violence misdemeanors. The sheriff's office also delivered cleaning supplies throughout the jail, including F-Wing. Up first this week, we hear an update on Marius Mason. Hi, my name is Letha. I live in Philadelphia and I'm a good friend of Marius Mason. Um, I've supported him pre his incarceration and since 2008. Lately, Maurice has had some pretty major developments in terms of his situation while incarcerated. He is still at FCI Danbury in Connecticut, but he has moved from the women's facility down the hill to the men's facility. Um, he was just transferred last late last month, and he did release a statement, which I encourage everyone to read. It is on our website. It was also um, posted a few other places um, about what life has been like since the transition, what the actual um, transfer was like, and just like his general feelings on um, the transfer to the men's facility. Uh, to his knowledge, he's the only trans man to be transferred to a men's facility in the federal system. Things to know about the new facility, again, it is the same exact location as the women's facility. It is just a few steps away down the hill at Danbury, and so his address has not changed at all. 
he is currently out at his facility. He actually, when he uh, started there, I guess they have daily meetings at this unit and community meetings. And at the first community meeting, he did come out as a trans man. He said that um, there wasn't much of a reaction from the other people on his unit and that he felt very safe coming out. The unit that he's on is really different from the unit he was on uh, previously. So previously he was in the women's facility, which was essentially a big open space. Um, there were no cells. Right now he is in a single cell and he's on a unit with about 40 people and it is a therapy unit or a therapeutic unit. So there is a lot of mental health programming and mentors. Uh, and so he is able to have a lot of personal intense conversations with people on his block. And so he says that it feels like a, a comfortable space to be out. He has continued taking his HVAC class and his paralegal course. There's a bigger outdoor space, which we talked a lot about. I guess the women's facility didn't have much of a space. It was sort of, I think I've seen it. It's, it was just like a couple of trees and um, a park uh, or a picnic bench. But this unit has a much bigger outdoor space. There's even a track. And so he was able to take a run. Um, and yeah, he's really excited to be able to, to be out there. So yeah, in terms of writing to Marius, again, the address is exactly the same. Um, we have gotten word from some people that he hasn't responded to them and concerned that they are writing him, but he's not responding. And is he really interested in getting mail? Um, you know, what kind of mail do you send somebody who is not responding? Uh, I just want to make it clear that Marius is in the same situation he has been his entire incarceration, which means that there is a hundred person list of approved people he's able to contact. So if you write to him, he may be able to put your name and contact information on that list, but there is a, a process, an administrative process to do so. It's not as easy as just writing you back or giving your name and address to someone it, there is a process to do it. And I understand from Marius, it's a pretty simple process, but it still means that he has to go through this prison's administration to make it happen. And so for, you know, a lot of the mail he gets, he doesn't know if this is somebody who is going to be a consistent uh, pen pal or um, who really wants to hear back from him because that's not outlined in the letter. And so he may not add someone to his list of approved people because he's just you know, he doesn't want to get his hopes up or he, he doesn't want to go out of his way to take somebody off the list to put somebody else on and have that person not be reciprocal or not consistently uh, writing him back. With like any prison mail, you know, be sincere and uh, upfront about what you are able to do. So if you're able to write to him once a month, you know, definitely put that in your letter so he knows what to expect. And additionally, you know, the years that Maurice has been incarcerated, his mail has been heavily monitored. And so sometimes his mail simply does not get to him. So you have to be especially vigilant in scrutinizing the mail that you're sending him, whether it has anything in it that the prison might object to. And I, and I know that that can be really difficult to determine, but you know, one thing that we found is that if Marius receives pretty much any mail with photos of trans 
against people, it will be rejected um, as too sexual um, and other things like that. And so, yeah, just keep in mind when you, when you do mail him what the contents of your letter are, maybe uh, continue to write to him in you know, just letter form and then add pictures later once you have a back and forth. Just again, it's very possible that he doesn't get your mail. Even if you don't receive mail back from a prisoner, that doesn't mean that they don't care or they don't value your letter. There could be any number of reasons why you're not getting mail back. And uh, Maurice definitely appreciates all the mail that he receives. And he constantly tells us that you know when he does get mail, it means the world to him. So please write him, continue to send him content from the outside that is really important and a great way to support political prisoners and all prisoners. And now we finish the conversation between Judah Shept and Nicole Siegel, both of whom successfully fought a jail expansion here in Monroe County several years back. As a new proposal for a jail expansion is on the table, Shept and Siegel have been reflecting on their previous fight and what lessons from it we can carry into the present. There's a very simple way to approach alternatives to incarceration and to, there's a simple litmus test for whether they are actually alternatives. And that is, are they net widening? Community corrections is net widening. Electronic That's monitoring, incarceration is net widening. It is not shrinking the system. Exactly, exactly. That's the, you're right. That is the best sort of test of whether something is in fact an alternative to or an expansion of the system. Yeah. So Judah, what can the city and the county do instead? Right Earlier in this conversation, you said the number of people in jail in 2049 will be a direct reflection of the decisions and actions taken by the city, the county, the state, uh, by people at all of these scales, including the scale of community. So what can we do instead? You've already said a number uh, of things that we can do, but let's pull them all into one place and just list them. Okay. I would say... Before I do that, let me make two, one quick sort of point. I think one thing we could, one sort of set of quote unquote solutions we could name have to do very sort of specifically with what we think of as the function of the jail as being about sort of crime and punishment. So in that sort of set of solutions, you know, the county could fund all kinds of alternatives along the lines of what we were naming that in fact meet people's basic needs that solve the problems that the cops and the jail have for the last 40 or 50 years been asked to quote unquote solve. So that is the county could fund robust social services, fund robust and non-coercive drug treatment, could fund house, you know, shelters for houseless folks, robust housing. Absolutely. Build housing. Exactly. I mean, there's all kinds of sort of like obvious things there that are, in fact, alternatives to investing in jail infrastructure. The other thing that I think has to be said here is that jails often, of course, are indexed to crime and punishment, but in fact are about like lots of other things that we think of as being sort of outside of criminal justice. So they might be about infrastructure and the need to sort of update infrastructure in a given area where a jail is being proposed. They might be about 
incentivizing businesses to locate to a particular area. They might be about being able to connect roadways. They, of course, at times are about job provision. They can be revenue generating. These are things that we tend to not necessarily think of as being related to carceral capacity, but I think is really incumbent upon us to examine. Because if, and, and I don't know this in the case of Monroe County in this moment, but back in 2008, part, at least part of the impetus for the Justice Campus, it wasn't just to resolve crises of overcrowding. It was also to incentivize white collar businesses to relocate to the area of town, the old RCA Thompson site. The Justice Campus would have sat within a particular tax increment finance district. Had the Justice Campus been built, it would have required connecting roads and other um, utilities and infrastructure that would enable residential growth on that area. And like I said before, businesses relocating. That, of course, was all in partly at least in response to the departure of RCA Thompson in the late 90s and the loss over decades of 10,000 jobs. The point just being, actually, let me say one more quick thing on that note. Here in Kentucky, what we see is half of the state's prison population, a full half, is incarcerated in county jails. And what this does, particularly in poor rural areas of Kentucky, very much including Eastern Kentucky, is it incentivizes it incentivizes building new and bigger jails in order to reap the benefits of the per diem payments that the Kentucky Department of Corrections pays to house state prisoners and county jails, and also at times the feds pay to house people for ICE or the U.S. Marshals. I just want to jump in to say that yeah. the sentencing legislation that Indiana passed in 2014 did the exact same thing. It foisted the state prison population back onto the county jails and it, it produced this wave of need in counties across the state for bigger, newer jails. And that was, that was a direct result of state level political decision making. It didn't have anything to do with the rise of crime in, in counties, but it became incumbent upon counties then to deal with this issue because the state had said, now we're going to return some percentage of people who are incarcerated in state prisons to county jails because we're going to redefine their crimes in a way that makes it uh, possible for state prisons to, to say, these people need to be put somebody somewhere else back in the counties. That's right. So there's a term for this in studies of the carceral state. It's called carceral devolution. It's simply scaling down mass incarceration to the county level. And states do it for all kinds of reasons. The point for our purposes, and in response to your question, Nicole, about what the county can do differently, my point in bringing that up here is just to say that even as we should be, or Monroe County residents should be really pushing for the county to invest in all of these other areas in lieu of building a jail, all the things we've named multiple times here. I think it's also really important to engage in sort of grassroots study of whether the proposal for jail expansion might also be at least in part about some of these other reasons that are sort of outside of what we think of as criminal justice. Is it related to revenue? Is it related to infrastructure? Is it related to county debt? How would the new jail be financed? 
right? Is it related to jobs? And if the answer is yes, in any of those areas or other ones that I'm not thinking of or haven't named, those are other really important points of leverage for opposition. Because if it's about revenue or if it's about infrastructure extension, or if it's about um, surplus land usage, the county and organizers and whatnot can engage in really creative, imaginative, and crucially important exercises in saying, these are other ways we could use this land. These are other ways we could update basic infrastructure. These are other ways that the county can increase revenue without building a big new jail. So I, that would be the other area that I would recommend people sort of spend time developing. I, I hope very much that people in Monroe County will decide to try to make some of these points to decision makers in, in our communities, in our at our various scales of government. I would encourage people who would like to get involved, who would maybe like to organize around this question to get in touch with with me or with KiteLine, you can email KiteLine at KiteLine, K-I-T-E-L-I-N-E, no space, at WFHB.org. And, you know, to, to take it upon ourselves, really, to be in touch uh, with the city and county councils, with the mayor, and so on, um, to attend the planning meetings where the consulting groups offer up their reports, and to, to voice your opinions and to do it collectively. You know, in 2008, we were successful. We prevented the building of a new jail. And no, we, we were not overwhelmed. We were not overrun by criminals and mayhem and chaos. And I think if we can do that again in some smart way, we could vastly improve life for every part of every segment of the population in our town. Um, and it would be also an incredible process to go through together. I hope people will decide to come together to organize against these unnecessary net widening punitive proposals. Me too. <laughs> I hope that as well. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm just gonna underline one thing you said, Nicole. We won. Like we defeated the Justice Campus proposal. We were helped by the ridiculous price tag that was attached to it and the fact that it was 2008 and the economy was in shambles. And I'm basing this evaluation on what people who had supported the Justice Campus reported to me. It was defeated, at least in part due to the work that we did, the organizing we did, the development of kind of a different sort of common sense around incarceration and alternatives to it. So this is very, very doable, again. We can be a rudder. We can change the direction of the ship, even if we're a very small part of the whole. We can do it. Judah, thank you so much for talking to KiteLine today. Thank you for your work in the past. And I cannot wait to read Cole Cage's Crisis. I know it's going to be another really important intervention in the evil ways that we've decided to deal with social issues in our world. You're part of the solution. Thank you so much for the work that you do. Oh, thank you so much, Nicole. It's um, amazing to chat with you and reflect on that time. And uh, I really appreciate the chance to, to come and chat. You can hear the previous episodes with Shept and Siegel on our website. To read Marius's statement about his transfer and to get information on how to write to him, 
please visit supportmariasmason.org. This has been KiteLine. Thank you to everyone who contributed to the show. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. And if you want to financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.